Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Let's see if we can put some finishing touches on this reading of chapter 3 here at the start of Seminar 17. We've been talking about repetition, retroaction, and loss. And I think you now have a sense of how these three phenomena fit together. Loss for Lacan is at the origin an origin indexed by a repetition of an entity or an event at a later date. And this loss at the origin, an origin only seen at a later date in its repetition, marks Lacan's sense of entropy, an origin that is always a lost origin. And if we could be a little more precise, we might say an entropic origin from entropy. It's a lost entropic origin. That's what we see in Lacan's understanding of repetition as retroaction, as the index and measure of an origin that is lost to entropy, to noise, randomness, disorder, uncertainty, all the classic thermodynamic understandings of what happens, except for Lacan, it's not chronological, but retro-effective. Entropy occurs at origins when recast at a later date as just that, original, not as the system unfolds over time, or at least less so in what he's trying to do with his theory of repetition around the topology of the subject. Is sexual jouissance, let's just cut to the chase, Is this the lost entropic origin of surplus jouissance? No. But its renunciation is. And yet, even our agreement to avoid sexual jouissance from now on, the castrative contract that affords me a place in the symbolic, even this misses Lacan's point. Our affirmation, our beya'ung, if you want to stick again with that earlier riff that Lacan does on affirmation in Seminar 3, our affirmation of the no of the Father is not the lost entropic origin of surplus jouissance. Rather, it's what this affirmation forbids us from pursuing any further. Now we're getting after it. The lost entropic origin of surplus enjoyment, notice how we're stringing together terms that we've built. It's what this affirmation forbids us from pursuing any further. Not sexual jouissance, not its renunciation, not the agreement for which this renunciation stands but the pathway to sexual jouissance, 
That is the lost entropic origin of surplus enjoyment. It's not sexual jouissance, it's not its renunciation, and it's not the agreement that this renunciation stands for. Instead, it's the pathway toward sexual jouissance that is the lost entropic origin of surplus enjoyment. What Lacan calls the path to jouissance, the path to enjoyment, the path to jouissance on which we were before castration, that is now lost, obscured, disordered, illegible, effaced, entropic. Think about this in terms of pathways. This is the point at which the path forward, the path on which you were, now begins to fade out. You can no longer see the trail in front of you. It's obscured. It has suffered entropy. It has lapsed into randomness, disorder, and uncertainty. It's unclear to you where this path goes from here. That is the lost entropic origin of surplus enjoyment. The experience of surplus enjoyment means that the path to sexual enjoyment can no longer be seen. That's what we're talking about here. We are not dealing with sexual enjoyment. We're dealing with the pathway toward sexual enjoyment. That is where entropy operates. That's where we see obscurity and obstruction occurring. When we enjoy at a surplus, which we're going to define and discuss here in a minute, it means that the pathway to sexual jouissance can no longer be seen. We lose sight of it, whether it's obscured or not. Lacan's point at the start of Seminar 17 is that this invisibility, this obscurity, this oblivion on the path of the path to sexual jouissance comes at a cost. This shit ain't free. There's a cost here. Even this, Lacan says on page 20, don't get it twisted, has to be paid for. That's what he's up to, that middle part of page 20. He's working at the logics of payment. There's a cost that you sustain, a cost that you must pay. And the question now is, what's up with that? I'm not trying to be clever here. I don't fuck around like that. The way we rock, we try and be clear, coherent, and accessible. You heard me say it. It's all over our materials. So let's try that. This ain't about cleverness. It's about finding a crisp, clear way of understanding what Lacan is up to. One that you can build upon. One that can bear weight of further inquiry, further reading into this seminar. We pay for access to surplus jouissance here and now by renouncing any promise of sexual jouissance to come. There's a nice summary of what we've got under our belt so far. We pay for access to surplus jouissance. Here and now, going forward, we get surplus jouissance. We have access to it. Welcome to the jungle. I'm sorry, I mean late capitalism. By renouncing 
any promise of sexual jouissance to come, which is precisely why the logic of late capitalism is always some variation on commanding us to enjoy at the level of sexual jouissance, right? And why that imperative always has to come from the superego. The superego gets off on punishing us for not living up to the imperatives that it issues. Enjoy, exclamation point, that people just love to discuss apparently. Enjoy comes from the superego and its enjoyment at the level of sexual jouissance that we can't get to, we ain't ever been there, and now we can't even find the path, and you're telling me to get after it? Oh, Lord, that's a difficult thing to do, and the superego's right. is like, that's right, and that's why you suck. Anyway, we're not going to go into that. The point here is that the payment that we render, that we tender, that we tender beings render, if you want to start really fucking with it. It's tragic. It's tragic. This is a hilariously comic corrective to a truly tragic situation known as consumer capitalism that we're working towards here, man. So you got you to gotta crack up at whatever you can get your hands on here. We pay for this privilege of surplus enjoyment, this ever-disappointing privilege known as surplus enjoyment, by renouncing the promise of sexual jouissance to come. And then the great dilemma and the real tragedy here is that we then are spoon-fed the very thing that we were told we could no longer have if only we just purchased this entity or thing. We'll come to that in a second. Again, let me reiterate, this is not a giving up of something we once possessed, experienced in the past, but a forbearance from something in the future. That's what's up with sexual jouissance. I cannot emphasize this enough. We didn't have that shit, and then it's been taken from us, and we told we can't have it anymore. Nah, man, we never had it in the past. What's happening here is we are suffering a forbearance from it in the future. We're saying we will no longer go after it. Castration, you heard me say, is a covenant. This is what I mean. It's a promissory agreement of sorts to give up our pursuit of sexual jouissance in exchange for this reduction of jouissance. Again, page 46 in Seminar 17. A reduction of jouissance that functions as a surplus relative to this loss, this giving up, this renunciation, this promise to go no further. The surplus here is a little something that we get beyond in addition to this loss. It's a compensation of sorts, Lacan even says. So, we have two core concepts at this point that we're working on. There's surplus enjoyment and sexual enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment as a reduction of jouissance that is accessible to castrated and barred subjects in the symbolic order. There's our first preliminary definition of surplus enjoyment. And again, if you've seen our series on 16, you know where we're going with this. This is still by way of review, by way of ramp up to this text, because this is part of what Lacan assumes you've already got in mind. He assumes you were there for 16. Whether you were or you weren't, this is us ramping up to where he anticipates his audience heading next. Then you've got sexual jouissance, this lost entropic origin. The pathway to sexual jouissance is the lost entropic origin of surplus jouissance. 
indexed by surplus jouissance, a pathway that is hereafter obscured, a pathway whose obscurity from now on we simply accept. That is the primitive affirmation. That is the beya'un that is happening here. We accept that that pathway is now obscured and obstructed. And we try and get on thereafter. What exactly then is surplus enjoyment? In short, as you just heard me allude to, it's commodity consumption. It's an acceptance of sublimated metonymic stand-ins for all the proverbial lost objects that psychoanalysts love to discuss left and right. The more Lacanian you are, the more you like to bandy about lost objects. And you can, yeah, I'm, try, I'm cool, you know, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to push anybody's buttons here, but I think there's a little more to this. Surplus enjoyment traffics in this fetishization of lost objects. So the lost object is the breast. And the substitutive metonymic stand-in for this that is sublimated, read socially acceptable because mom sure ain't going to show up and put her tit in your mouth anymore. Okay, I don't know what it is. It could be a cigarette. It could be a drink. It could be your thumb. It could be your fingernails, whatever you chew on. How about a piece of gum? Feces. So if you run the stage argument, you've got an anal phase. There's potty training that occurs. Feces becomes a lost object. Excrement, something you have to let go of. A lost object that will no longer return. That's the whole point of the toilet. And then you've got all these stand-ins. Objects that substitute for the loss of shit. Like all your shit. Money. Classic. Stuff. Collectibles. All the stuff that you see. For sale. In your house. In your storage war. In your hoarders episode. These are all metonymic stand-ins for a lost object that just can't quite be let go of feces. The gaze. Okay, if we're just moving down the Lacanian ladder of lost objects, here we arrive at the scopic drive. I'm not tired of this, by the way, but I think it's time for Lacanians to start turning that screw beyond Lacan, and yet in ways that are still completely true to his thought. The gaze at the level of the scopic drive. The gaze is a lost object we oftentimes hear. And then you've got all these other things that stand in for that lost object in the field of surplus enjoyment. Think of just a really great everyday example of this now. The like economy in whatever social media platform you rely upon. That like economy shows you at the level of every little click, touch, thumbs up, heart, smiley face, all that bullshit, those are stand-ins. Those are stand-ins for a gaze that has been lost. And all the posts that you put online really cut to the bone of what the gaze is about. It's not about actually being seen, but the capacity to be seen. The gaze is all the positions in your world, here a social media environment, 
from which an other could be watching you, and hopefully lots of others, and not just watching, but also indicating to others than those at Apple, than those at Facebook, than those at fill in the blank meta, and it just keeps getting bigger and more abstract, right? We had from, from Google to Alphabet, okay. In each case, though, what we're looking for here is a metonymic stand-in that indicates that we are indeed being seen. Now, you can run this out a hundred different ways. These are just some examples to keep us on point here. Surplus enjoyment marks an acceptance of sublimated metonymic stand-ins for proverbially lost objects. Stand-ins that in their consumption, we get a little spike, a little taste of enjoyment. That's surplus enjoyment. It's a little something extra. We could go on down the ladder into the voice and talk about the things that stand in for that metonymically. We don't need to. The point, I think, is pretty clear. Surplus enjoyment at a really basic level is what the child experiences when after the breast refuses to return, they start sucking their thumb, their pacifier, their sippy cup, whatever. It's that resorting to a substitute object when the primordial object refuses to return. And that's what weaning is, okay? The breast refuses to return. Potty training, the shit goes away. And then there's this opportunity right there. Do you sustain and stick with lack, conditioned by the loss of that object? Or do you look for something to plug that hole? Surplus enjoyment is when you look, find, and continually acquire objects to plug those holes. Let's see how Lacan figures this. Page 50 is a pretty good one. And you can hear him, I believe, if you read this paragraph on page 50 carefully, you can hear him throwing a bit of shade on this approach to psychoanalytic thought. Check it out. This is the hollow, he starts. It's probably about 10 lines from the bottom of page 50. This is the hollow, the gap, that no doubt a number of objects initially come and fill. Objects that in some way are adapted in advance, designated to be used, designed to be used as stoppers. This is one of like the great images in psychoanalytic thought from Freud to Lacan. It's that of the stopper or the plug. If you go back and you actually look at the dream of Irma's injection, if you go back and you look at Emma Eckstein and the biographical history that this earliest of patients to Felice, unfortunately, and also Freud sustained at the level of her nasal cavity, right? The very images that would give you the turbinal bones and things in the back of Irma's mouth in Freud's dream of Irma's injection. When you go back and look at the actual case history behind that and the traumas that Emma Eckstein, the actual patient, suffered. Now, I'm going to blame it on Fleece, but man, bro goes up into her nose, leaves gauze in there, it becomes infected, they unplug her nose, and this gush of blood comes out. Freud even admits to fainting. He says he has to go into another room and take a shot of whiskey before he go back in and deal with the mess. This is some wild stuff. Anyway, if you're curious about this, the entire third part of my last book, The Chattering Mind, is about this plugging, unplugging dialectic that you see in this very classical 
foundational dream in the interpretation of dreams that becomes the foundational text for psychoanalysis of the Freudian stripe and only stripe, and then into Lacan. So when Lacan talks about stoppers, plugs, and all these things, ears, you best be pricking up. I don't know if he knows what he's doing, but there is absolutely this imagistic through line from Freud to Lacan around the ways that objects are used as plugs for various holes, symbolic, real, and imaginary. There are hollows, there are gaps, gaps left behind by objects that no longer return. In the case of the breast, the mouth emerges as a hollow, as a gap, because something doesn't just immediately, as soon as I open it with a cry, get shoved in there. Just think about this practically. Parents are going to have a much easier time with this <laughs> than non-parents, but I think you all can imagine how this goes. There is this hollow and then initially, a number of objects come to fill it. Objects that in some way are adapted in advance, Lacan says, designed to be used as stoppers, corks, plugs. This is no doubt, Lacan continues, where a classical analytic practice stops. With its emphasis upon these various terms, oral, anal, scopic, not to mention vocal, these are various names by which we can designate as an object the little a, object a. But the little a as such is, strictly speaking, what follows from the fact that at its origin, knowledge is reduced to an articulation of signifiers. So everything in this paragraph up to that final sentence is Lacan taking a bit of a shit on the traditional approaches to drive theory. And then you get at the end. Don't forget, Lacan insists that the object of the drive is object little a. And part of the question that we answered in our previous series is, what exactly is the nature of that little a in the diagram of the drive? And if you've seen the series, if you've heard it on the podcast, if you, I don't know, when it comes out, you'll know exactly what we're talking about here. It's less an object than an opening. That is what Lacan is cluing us to here. But, he says, this little a, as such, is something different. Strictly speaking, the little a in question here is what follows from the fact that at its origin, don't forget, we're talking about origins here, knowledge is reduced to an articulation of signifiers. So you can take your obja and you can shove it in a hole, in a hollow, in a gap in order to serve as a stopper or a plug. And he says that this is part of what a certain type of classical analytic practice has done, and also where it stops. I like this image. It's a great little paragraph to play with, because you see Lacan then stretching Objet-A into something more essential, something more foundational to our understanding of where this thing comes from and how it operates. And he says it operates at the level of an articulation of signifiers. Now, Initially, that ain't helpful. 
But when you think about what he does with articulations of signifiers, differential articulations of signifiers, now you see where we're going with this. Objet is not a lost object in this more essential vein that Lacan is pumping up for us. Nor is it the substitute metonymic surplus object that we use to plug the hole left behind by these lost objects. No. Instead, objet A, in this paragraph, Lacan is indexing it as the necessary structural and experiential gap between these lost objects and hole pluggers. These proverbial lost objects of the breast, feces, gaze, and the voice, and then all the other consumer commodities that we purchase day in and day out to plug the holes, literally and metaphorically, left behind by the loss of these proverbial objects. What Lacan is here suggesting is that where you see objet a is neither on the side of the lost object or the acquired commodity. Instead, like an articulation of signifiers, it's in the differential relation between those two entities. That's where you see objet a. And let me tell you what is between the lost object and the artifact or commodity that you purchase. What else is between them but the opening, the hole? The mouth is what is between the lost object of the breast and that piece of gum or that cigarette that you're reaching for right now. What's between them, in other words, is not another object, but instead an opening, an opening on the human form. This return to objet a as a differential relation between signifiers, signifiers that, like this very definition of language, bear repeating in order to sustain meaning, is a clue. This is a clue buried in a paragraph on page 50 in Seminar 17. It's not just a clue to the operation of surplus enjoyment relative to this obscured and obstructed path towards sexual enjoyment. Nah, man. This is also a clue to something else, a way of being in the world with oneself and others that defies surplus and sexual jouissance alike and opens us up, I believe, to another more satisfying and certainly more sustaining pathway to enjoyment. This is one we're going to have to earn. Let me be clear. When we pay for surplus enjoyment with sexual enjoyment, we exchange the latter for something else. What is surplus enjoyment? Very early on in Seminar 17, Lacan, almost the first time he introduces the topic of surplus enjoyment, he links it to desire. This is the first step in realizing this other clue, this clue to a third pathway. Returning to this early connection between surplus enjoyment and desire. 
Notice how Lacan puts this. It's on page 19 of Seminar 17. The relationship to jouissance is suddenly made to appear in a different light by this still virtual function called the function of desire. And he's talking about the relationship to jouissance conditioned by the shift to surplus jouissance. You can go back and read page 19 and see where I'm getting this quote from. This relationship to jouissance that we know as surplus enjoyment, it's suddenly made to appear in a different light, connected to something virtual that is the function of desire. Here's how I read this passage. Surplus enjoyment is desire spiked with jouissance. It gives us a hint of enjoyment, a spike of dopamine, but one that doesn't last and barely satisfies us even in the moment that it enjoys. That's the nature of surplus enjoyment. That shit don't last, and even when it's in place, occurring, it's still a fucking letdown. And yet, here's my point, here's my wager, here's the clue. I believe that this spike of surplus enjoyment, and I believe that Lacan's work in the late 1960s shows this through and through. I believe that this spike of surplus enjoyment also puts us on the path to something I call real enjoyment. Not enjoyment denigrated by desire, which is what we see in surplus enjoyment, but enjoyment at the level of the drive. Consider, for instance, the life of a consumer product. So there you are at the store. You've got the thing. You purchase it. You're feeling good. Damn, them sneakers are fire. And you've got your sneakers. You've got your new shoes. And you've put them in the car and you drive home. My understanding, and big shout out to the group on the, seven, on the Seminar 16 series because y'all called my attention to this in one of the discussions. Wow, very interesting. My understanding from these folks is that the peak of your enjoyment of the product, of the commodity, comes not in its purchase, not in its wearing, but in the unboxing. The unboxing of the artifact is the most you're ever going to enjoy it. So, it's when you get home and you put the shoebox on the counter and you open the shoebox lid and you peel back that crinkly paper and you see the sneakers in the box. That is the peak of surplus enjoyment at the level of commodity consumption. After that peak, it is just a gradual decline to trash, to deject, to reject. So you have this shiny object in a box, hear me now, and then you've got this gradual decline through various wearings and trips and experiences where you wear your sneakers. You'll remember the first time you wear them, but not like the 73rd time you wear them. And you've got this gradual decline to the point where the sneakers become worthless, where they maybe get donated, given to another person, thrown in the garbage. This transition from shiny new object to piece of shit to be thrown away is a transition from the specular figure of little I, little A 
if you recall the first diagram of our last series, all the way down to obja qua shit, qua reject, which is also how Lacan is using it in seminar 17. This transition from that spike of surplus enjoyment to the commodity no longer providing any kind of enjoyment, no longer triggering any kind of desire for its use. In fact, your desire has already moved on to other shoes at that point. In fact, it's maybe even because you've already purchased another pair of new sneakers that you now decide finally to let go of your previous pair, the pair that we've been discussing that has now become trash. I cue this up to you because I want to think about what we do when the commodity becomes shit. There, I see an opportunity, an occasion for something different, a different way of being, a way of being that puts us right alongside lack, a way of being there with mit Dasein, lack, the lack that we are. And this is how I read the drive. But let's take another commodity. You heard us talk about the oral drive. You heard us talk about cigarettes. I also brought up gum. It's not the first time you've heard me talk about gum. If you've seen our series on the drive, you know that series ends with a child blowing bubbles with the gum. What happens though when gum loses its flavor? This is what I've been thinking about recently. My kid really likes chewing gum, and so we're always getting gum. And I'm telling you, man, like five minutes after I chew this gum, it turns to this hard, flavorless, it like destroys my mouth. I don't even know what's happening in there with this thing, with this gum. Jesus, the gum, when it loses its flavor, and yet I want to say there's something magnificent that happens in that moment. It's an opportunity. When the gum loses its flavor, I discover my mouth. And when I spit the gum out, my mouth as a newfound opening relative to this lost metonymic object, an object that was only ever a repetition, retroactive stand-in for the breast, if you want to play the classical psychoanalytic game here. My mouth in this moment where I spit out the very thing that I put in to plug the hole that emerged when mommy's tit refused to come back, my mouth in this moment becomes an erogenous zone. It becomes a source for my oral drive. And with it, real enjoyment. Not at the level of commodity consumption, read surplus enjoyment, and certainly not on the pathway to sexual enjoyment. That's important. When my mouth emerges as a found opening relative to an object whose loss I have effected when I spit the gum out, we are not talking about surplus enjoyment anymore. And we are not trying to rediscover the pathway to sexual jouissance. It is a third path that I'm carving out here. This is a path that is found at the level of my lived experience as an embodied singular being. In this case, one with a mouth that opens and closes. A mouth whose enjoyment occurs not just when I fill it with food, but when I order it off the menu. 
This is Lacan's point in 11, right? Around ordering food at a restaurant. The oral drive is just as active when you order off the menu as when you eat off the plate. It's about the operation of the mouth, not what goes in and not what comes out. It's about its operativity as a function, as a structure, as a logic. It's at the level of my lived experience as an embodied singular being with a limited number of mouths on this human form, here as a living individual, and not just on my own. This is not some bare life business we're talking about here. I am a living individual in the field of castration. This is precisely why Lacan, when he develops the mathem for the drive, where does he put it on the graph of desire? It's in the upper right-hand quadrant in the field of castration. The drive does not begin on the side of jouissance. It gives us a return arrow, the highest ladder, rung in the ladder, that is the graph of desire to jouissance. But the drive itself is located in the field of castration, in the midst of castration. So I'm not just a living individual with a mouth that is embodied and uniquely my own, and interestingly, if you're lucky, also not for sale. I'm a living individual who is living in the field of castration, also as a divided barred subject. Don't forget the barred subject, even though it fades from the drive, it is also present in the mathem of the drive, and for good reason. The shift I'm trying to get us to think and that I've been trying to get us to think from our series on the drive up through 14, through 16, and now here in 17, with I think some pretty good evidence here, is that we need to figure out a way to re-theorize the drive apart from lost objects, whether they are original, proverbial, mythical, or metonymic, substitutive, and surplus, away from these lost objects and the things we buy to plug the holes they leave behind to the found openings that are constantly emerging in this toggle between proverbially lost objects and consumer commodities that we buy to plug the holes. It's the holes that bear interest here. And that is the object of the drive. When Lacan puts objet a in the diagram of the drive, that ain't an object in there. It's an opening. And it's an opening that ultimately traces its connection to a source that is on the human form. These are found openings conditioned by lost objects. Not about objects, but openings on the human form. Openings whose operation allow them to be opened and closed. Mouths, anuses, eyelids, outer ears, hands, vaginas, urethras, penile grooves, pores, nostrils, you just keep going. Anything that can be opened and closed on the human form can become an erogenous zone and thus a source for the drive and a site in which you can see objet a as opening, operating. All of this, I want to suggest, is occasioned by the decline and ultimate rejection 
of metonymic objects of desire. Read Consumer Commodities. And thus, surplus enjoyment as well. Leaving in their stead only objet a as a found opening. A found opening whose operativity is conditioned by rejection. As rejection. This is what Lacan's up to when he says objet a functions as a reject. It marks a reject. And here's the thing. This is a found opening that's just for me. Just for us. Just for you. The final word in chapter 3 is also a really good one for us. Because it suggests that these found openings that put us on the path to objet a as reject are especially relevant to the work of the analyst. This decline and ultimate rejection of surplus jouissance is well displayed in the discourse of the analyst, whose dominant position, whose agential position you see as objet a, and that for Lacan is the dominating position of the reject. Analyst as reject, how can you not love this? Notice how Lacan cues this up, and I mean it literally as the last sentence or two in chapter 3. Page 53. It is to the analyst and to him alone that this formula I have so often commented on. Wo es war soll ich werden. You've heard it before. It's this famous Freudian bumper sticker. If you don't have this yet tattooed across your lower back, you are missing out. Legit, though, this would be a pretty fire tattoo. It is to the analyst and to him alone that this formula I have so often commented on, this vois vor sol ich werden, is addressed. That shit is addressed to the analyst and to him alone. What does he mean by this? If the analyst tries to occupy this place, which determines his discourse at the top left, he is absolutely not there for himself. It is there where the surplus jouissance, the other's jouissance was, that I, as proffering the psychoanalytic act, must come. This is his latest, maybe his greatest, reading of that famous Freudian maxim, where surplus enjoyment was psychoanalytic theory and technique, but here the emphasis is on technique must become. The psychoanalytic act is premised not on the renunciation of sexual enjoyment. Tune in, y'all. This is the renunciation of surplus enjoyment. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.